It was the dawn of the third age of podcasting, 30 years after the series had launched. The Babylon podcast was a dream given form. Its goal, to discuss the place where humans and aliens could work out their differences peacefully. It's a port of call, home away from home for established fans, newbies, John, Blaine, and guests. Humans and aliens wrapped in 2,500,000 tons of spinning metal, all alone in the night. It can be a dangerous place. Wait, what? But it's our last, best hope for peace. This is the story of the last of the Babylon stations. The year is 2024. The name of the podcast is... Babylon 5, 30 Years Later. Welcome to Babylon 5, 30 Years Later, the podcast where we look at each episode of the original Babylon 5 series, 30 years after the broadcast date, and take a look at it from the perspective, for the most part, of people who've never seen the episode before. When I say we, I mean myself, Blaine Dowler, and my ever-present co-host, John M. Wilson. Hey, Blaine, how's it going? Ah, it's going well. How about you? I am here. Uh, I just got out of watching uh, my girlfriend dance on the stage, and um, we're going to go out to dinner later, but I thought we'd do a podcast. Okay. Well, that gives us plenty of time to podcast, considering we're starting at about 6 a.m. my time. Well, you know, it's always dinner time somewhere. <laughs> yep. You're a couple time zones later than me, but hey, it's that pre-dinner activity that is really time-consuming. But we're going to keep this family friendly. So, uh, yeah, Born to the Purple, a Londo-focused episode. Yes, one that first aired on February 9th, 1994. When you say Londo-focused episode... The main cast, there's a few plot threads going. So there's really two plots involving Londo. The A plot is that he is involved with a dancer who turns out to be a slave who was sent to get involved with him to get access to the Purple Files, which is all the political dirt he has gathered on his enemies. And she has clearly fallen in love with him during their time together, but she is a slave who fears for her life, so she does steal the files she is reluctant to give them to her slave master, Clive Revel, and has to navigate to get out. She does eventually manage to get free, and with Sinclair's help, her slavery contract is ended. So while that is going on, Londo is neglecting the B-plot, which is his need to negotiate a treaty in the Euphrates sector with the Narns, which is important to Commander Sinclair because it would prove that Babylon 5 was doing the job it's supposed to do. It's important to Jakar because that's important to the Narns because they're directly involved with it. It's also important to their attachés or their supporters. There's Stephen First as Virkoto, as well as Mary Warrenoff as Kodath, who is the Narn support or assistant to the ambassador. And then the other prominent plot thread is that uh, Garibaldi has noticed somebody is using gold channels, which are so secure that people aren't even supposed to know they exist. It's supposed to be just for ambassadors and executive personnel used only with Commander Sinclair's permission. So he's trying to figure out what's going on. He's concerned because those are high-priority secure channels. If the security's been broken, that's a massive security risk with the ambassadors and all their conversation. Lieutenant Commander Ivanova does not appear to be taking it as seriously as he does and suggests it might even be gremlins. In the course of that, Garibaldi realizes that Ivanova is the one who's actually making the transmissions 
And when he breaks into one to see what's being discussed, he realizes it's not what he thought, and that her father is dying, and he's there to basically eavesdrop on the farewell speech that his father, or her father, gives Ivanova. So rather than hold her to that, he understands what's going on, and his final confrontation is, yeah, you know what, I finally tracked down that gremlin. You were right, it was a computer glitch, I've taken care of it. I don't think it's going to happen again, is it? She just says, no, it's not. He offers to buy her a drink. She says, well, no, I'm on duty, but maybe later. And that wraps up that plot thread. So at least in terms of this episode as a standalone, did I miss anything for the plots before we move on to casting crew? No, I'm pretty sure that covered everything. The the A and B plots were so intertwined that it almost felt like one plot was just like a minor side aspect to it. But then that bit with uh, Ivanova and Garibaldi, that was pretty unexpected. Yeah. Um, so then we'll quickly hit the casting crew. So Kodoth is played by Mary Warrenov just this once. She had an extreme allergic reaction to them. Oh, is that what it was? But the thing I had read said that she did not want to wear the red contacts. That was the part that irritated her the most. So she, she found that difficult. And yeah, so the Larry Detilio said it was, it was an, an allergic reaction. So it was a, whether it's the makeup, the contacts, she had an extreme physical reaction to that NAR makeup. So they had to find other solutions down the road. The other two really prominent guest stars are Fabiana Udenio. I'm hoping I'm pronouncing that correctly. She was Adira. It's probably Fabiana. That's the Italian. But um, I know her from Austin Powers. She has a, a brief scene in that. Yeah, she is best known as Alada Fagina from Austin Powers International Man of Mystery. Anna Maria Mazzarelli from Summer School, and Elena Danola from Jane the Virgin are her three known fours on the IMDb. Clive Revel is one of the people who's done a lot of work for genre fans, especially of our generation. We might know him best as Kickback from the 1990s Transformers animated specials, so the TV shows and the movie. And he was also the original voice of the Emperor in The Empire Strikes Back in the 1980 release version that was broadcast, he was the voice, and it was an old woman in makeup for the face of the Emperor before they went with Ian McDonald consistently and had him reshoot that sequence for the, the special edition. Gotcha. Now, uh, behind the camera, I think the main ones, there's Bruce Seth Green. He is the director, and this is his first of four episodes of Babylon 5 that he will direct, all four of which originally aired in 1994. So we'll be wrapping up his contribution by the end of the year. He's done lots of stuff like, you know, Buffy. He's in lots of, lots of 90s TV. That... He did, although his credits seem to wrap up in 2001. The latest credits I could find for him are directing episodes of Roswell. So and there's almost no personal biographical information for him. Uh, he did direct part of the V series as well. Yes, a lot of work in genre there. Now, the writer is our first non-JMS writer, and we're not going to have many of those. Of the 110 regular episodes of the series, JMS writes 92, so there are only 18 episodes that were not written by Straczynski himself, a lot of which appear in this first season, and seven of which were written by Larry Dottilio, credited as Lawrence G. Dottilio. So he and JMS first met when they were working on He-Man and She-Ra together for Filmation. Then they got grabbed by Deke to help save a show that was in serious trouble of missing contract dates. So Larry Dottilio 
was credited with seven episodes. Now, I suspect by his description, because he just says, yeah, they were called in to save it. I suspect that that would have been Jason the Wheeled Warriors. Because they both worked on that. Dottilio wrote seven episodes with credit. And JMS apparently wrote 14 episodes uncredited on that series. Uh, that's the other Deke project I could find that they worked on together. Then Dottilio left Deke because he wasn't super happy with it, but JMS stayed on to do the real Ghostbusters. Uh, they were then reunited to work on Captain Power and the Soldiers of the Future, which lasted one season. That's where they wet, met Doug Netter and John Copeland, who became the producers on Babylon 5 and who JMS went to the first time because of their work on Captain Power and the Soldiers of the Future. When they hired him, they promised they would never rewrite his scripts, which is apparently a thing producers do, even though most producers are not writers. <laughs> and they were the only producers JMS has worked with who kept that promise when they made it. So he went to them first for Babylon 5. And yeah, they continued to work together. So that's kind of how they found each other. And JMS wanted Dottilio to be the story editor or executive story editor on Babylon 5 which is often synonymous with showrunner, but not in this case. Here, JMS was the showrunner, but he was writing so much himself, he needed another executive story editor. So Dottilio's role in that is that when people other than JMS are writing the scripts, it was Dottilio who would go back and do the rewrites and do the polish to make sure it was consistent with the big picture and with the tone of the show. And that's common enough that writers are generally happy if 50% of their script gets filmed as it was written. Oh, wow. Because you're, yeah, your story editors rewrite that much. Tatilia was very happy working in Babylon 5. He says in the introduction to this script in the Babylon 5 Other Voices volume, because he was in there, he was the story editor, so he was more like 75 to 85% in there. The 15 to 25% often is rewritten because of character availability or set realities. They have to, you know, rewrite for the budget and that type of thing. So sometimes as the credited writer rewriting it, it's not their original vision. It's just, yeah, that original vision doesn't fit our budget or schedule. So let's make some changes here. Right. And nowadays we have like all the uh, the writer's room type writing styles. A lot of those during the course of the writing. Yes, there's the writer's rooms are doing a lot more prediction this time. And writer's rooms were common in a lot of cases of the 80s and 90s already. Sci-fi doesn't have that reputation because Star Trek and at this point the X-Files were notable exceptions. They would accept a lot of scripts on spec that they have toned down a lot because there were apparently a lot of lawsuits around the Matrix because the Wachowskis had access to scripts that people were submitting that were writing the same cyberpunk and had similar ideas and were accused of stealing them because everyone used the low-hanging fruit. So they just said, no, we're opening up too many lawsuits. We can't do that anymore. And they shut that down pretty much across the board. But yeah, there, there was a time when uh, Star Trek would take unsolicited scripts. You could send a script by the mail and they would consider it. Whereas the X-Files didn't have a writer's room per se. People would just come to Chris Carter and pitch ideas and he'd say yes or no. Yeah, yeah. when I think of the writers for Star Trek, you know, in the classic and Really, relatively frequently, there would be, you know, guests, people who are famous for writing other things would write scripts for, and you wouldn't be in a writer's room doing at your house writing your script and sending it. Yep. So just a couple other names of people that were involved. Larry Dottilio 
likes to get work for friends and family, which is interesting. It's a slightly different perspective from JMS, which we'll talk about later, particularly with survivors. So there is a rhino-horned alien who's a bouncer at one point. That's played by his brother, Robert Attilio. Another notable but small guest star, there is a guy who hits on Kodath and gets thrown across the room and then gets attacked by Trachis later in the episode. He is played by Mike Norris, son of Chuck Norris. <laughs> okay. So I think that wraps up our ident card section where we do the, the plot summaries and talk about the key casting characters. So next up, we'll do the Zocalo, where we'll drop in a trailer. This time we are dropping in a trailer for the Justice League International Bwahaha podcast. So as they're going through one of the more famously comedic runs of the Justice League comics. So you guys can listen to that, and then we will reconvene to dig into the details. Justice League International Bwahaha Podcast, a monthly show chronicling the adventures of the JLI era by Keith Giffen and J.M. DeMatteis. We started with the very first issue, and our coverage goes all the way through breakdowns. We're going issue by issue in release order, tackling two comics per episode, both a Justice League America issue and a Justice League Europe issue. Now, along the way, we're also taking time out for special episodes covering the quarterly book, interviews with various comic book creators, discussing the plethora of spin-off series, cartoon appearances, the infamous TV pilot, and more. And when we're all done, we'll wrap up our coverage by looking at the 2003 and 2005 stories formerly known as the Justice League, and I can't believe it's not the Justice League. So join me in an ever-changing roster of guest hosts as we celebrate your favorite JLI members, such as... Batman. Martian Manhunter. Captain Atom. Fire. Ice. Rocket Red. The Flash. The Elongated Man. Maxwell Lord. Elrond. Power Girl. Renard de Rousse. I mean, Crimson Fox. Guy Gardner. Metamorpho. Booster Gold. Blue Beetle. Nort! Justice League International Bwahaha Podcast, part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Want to make something of it? And we're back. The League is in session. So, coming out of this episode, I've said a few times how Londo has been impressive as like, this is an episode. Yes, this is a lot of Londo and really establishing who he is, who he can be in a few ways. So I'll, I'll hear your thoughts first. So listeners who are new to the show, John has only seen the first season, and that was not recently. I haven't watched the recent either, but I have seen everything we're going to be discussing on the podcast for TV and movies. He makes the point here that has come up before, and I think if I remember right, comes up again, that the Centauri people are very concerned with appearances, propriety, position, status. Those all help define, you know, how they are in society. Adira makes a line early on whenever she calls him ambassador. He takes it as, you know, that's all I am to you is just an ambassador. And she's like, no, as part of her love for him, his title and his role is important. He likes that because she's Centauri. So I guess the fact that he is dating a dancer, somebody who doesn't have a whole lot of status to herself. Is something that he is not willing to make public, but is starting to come around to that in the course of this episode. They have not gone public with their relationship, but at one point in the episode, he wants to go out for their date. And she's taken and flattered 
by the fact that he wants to make the narratives more public. Of course, that's all complicated by the fact that she's a slave and has to betray him <laughs> in the course of the episode. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But yeah, she was impressed. Not just it was public, but it was fresh air, which is the most prestigious restaurant. So they're not going to some hole in the wall and hiding in a booth in the corner. Right. But no, they're very much public display to the point that even coming out of the negotiations with the Euphrates Treaty, Commander Sinclair is bringing Talia Winters to that same restaurant as a thank you for your work and your effort. And she comments that his thoughts were erotic and Sinclair goes, yeah, I'm not surprised and gestures with his head over to the table that they're at. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, we are definitely seeing that relationship there. We also see that the only thing that Londo and Jakar seem to agree on is that women are awesome. That opening scene had a very Wolf in the Fold kind of energy from Star Trek, the opening scene of that episode as well. Just the men sitting around, you know, being kind of wolfish. Instead of Scotty meeting up with the dancer and going off, it's Londo. Just kind of a similar energy there. And yeah, you mentioned the thing with um, Sinclair and uh, Blake and on her name, the telepath. Adira. Oh, Talia. Talia going out to the restaurant. I don't know. That felt a little more than I would expect. I mean, he's taking her to a very posh place. It's definitely the kind of place you would go for romantic dinners. But I realized that they wanted to have somebody else to kind of see Londo from across the room. So, you know, it, it works. It just seemed like the wrong tone to just give your staff congratulations for doing a good job in a tense place. It seemed like a weird tone for that choice. Yeah, we know it's upscale, so it would be for romantic dinners, but not exclusively that. But yeah, the kind of dim lighting, there is a bit of a romantic feel, so I can I can see that. I liked the, uh, the star laces, the Christmas light flower. Yeah, which also, I realized, establishes that they have been together for some time, because these, these are flowers from her home world, and she loves them. She hasn't seen them in a long time, so not only has Londo realized that, yes, this is a flower that she would really appreciate. He's had time to have them grown and they're in full bloom. So again, this plant, I don't know how long they stay in bloom, how long it takes to get there, but he got to know her well enough to know that she would appreciate that particular flower and have them grown on the station. Mm -hmm. And may maybe they go from seeds to blooms in one season. Maybe it takes them a year to get there. Yeah. And we know from the conversation about the coffee in the gathering that it's not easy to have things grown in the hydroponics bay. Oh, true. So he's going to some lengths and even, you know, gives her a family heirloom, which she leaves behind after her betrayal, and that's his red flag. So he wakes up feeling like his brain has been pulled out of his ear, he said. And it's when he sees that on their version of the coffee table that he starts to just basically lose interest in the Euphrates Treaty, focus on that, and that's when he gave Veer full ambassadorial authority. So it's actually Veer and Kodath who did a lot of the negotiation, apparently. Veer had one of those, um, those like LCD handheld games that were so popular in the early 90s, dressed up to look alien and special. But it was still, I'm sure it was like Double Dragon or something on there where you had little black LCD characters bouncing around on the screen. Yeah, which... <laughs> Jakar ends up playing later on. That's actually something that Larry Dottilio wasn't super happy with. At this point, he says, yeah, Veer was all comic relief, and Bruce Seth Green just didn't rein him in. He was mugging and playing it a little too broad. Uh, His first was just trying things out, because they were still going through the ground. So Dottilio wasn't 
really happy with how Bruce Seth Green directed a couple of the scenes. He talks about that in the, the script volume. So that might be why Bruce Seth Green only did the four in first season and that was it. Yeah, Veer does seem, I mean, we've described Londo as a little bit of a clown on previous episodes. And so to have his assistant be even more silly, I don't know, I guess you wouldn't want to play him super straight in contrast to Londo because that might be too much of a clash. But it, like I said, it is a little bit broad. Um, but as far as the main plots, those are those are most of my thoughts. We could come to the Ivanova stuff in a minute. Yeah, I think that about hits it for me as well. Aside from, well, no, you know what? I'm not even. I won't mention that now. We'll come back in giving form to the dream. Okay, I did actually just thought of this in my first watch of this episode for the podcast. So not my very very first, but my first recent one of the two that I did. I was trying to figure out what exactly was motivating Londo to keep them secret. And I thought from the front that she was probably a slave or a servant or something like that. So whenever we found out that Londo didn't know she was a slave, that's when I was trying to figure out, okay, so what is it about this relationship that he's keeping secret or that's, you know, motivating him to keep the whole thing a secret? And I'm guessing it's just her low social status. We don't know what Londo's family is at this point if he has family if he has a wife or husband or anything back home but i'm guessing it's just the fact that she's of whatever social standing that she has to dance in a club for income that's probably not good on his q score yeah especially this particular type of club yeah because there's there's nothing wrong with being a professional dancer but this isn't exactly the royal ballet right so it, it's i'm sure it is equally physically demanding and also requires talent, but it isn't viewed the same way. Yeah, it's a social stick. Yeah. The crystal the crystal storage, they used it exactly like a flash drive, but it was a piece of crystal, not a, not a USB stick. So flash drives in the future are cool. Yeah, especially when you realize this came out in 1994 and flash drives weren't a thing. Right. Plug and play was a barely nascent technology. Do you just plug something into your computer and store stuff on it? But I guess you did have floppy disks. There were floppy disks. I, I think at this point, for the high-capacity portable storage, I actually had a zip drive. So I'd plug it into my SCSI port, and it was basically a 100-megabyte floppy disk. But you'd probably have to boot the computer up with that already plugged in for it to see it as it was booted. Yeah. Yeah, it was one of those things where I left it plugged in all the time because it had to be plugged in when the computer was coming online or your computer wouldn't know it was there because again 1994 so i was running dos probably 6.22 with windows 3.1 maybe windows 3.11 for work groups at this stage right because of course windows 95 this is 1994 yeah yeah so rebooting was a very routine thing especially in dos if you were gaming because you know <laughs> whether you're using ems or xms memory management you might have to reboot depending on which game you wanted to play next. So the idea of having a storage device with removable media was definitely well, well, well established because, of course, that's floppy disks go back. But flash drives are something different. Flash drives are their own complete device being plugged into a port. And I, I'd have to go back and look and see which this particular thing is closer to if she's plugging it into a device that's connected to the computer because that would be like the removable media. But in any case, it doesn't really matter that. Yeah, and it's hard to tell here because this is also the stage where the computer is just the monitor. Oh, yeah. And the, everything's done with voice. Yeah. 
I did like how we don't even know what the Euphrates Treaty is. It's just a story device to, you know, keep those characters, you know, moving along. But, like, what it is and, and why it is, we don't know. It, it doesn't matter. Yeah, all we really know is that it's between the Centauri and the Narn, and Sinclair has a specific compromise in mind that yes. he gets Londo to agree to. And see with a kiss to make Jakar's day. And <laughs> I do appreciate the way they use Jakar. So when Jakar compliments Sinclair or says, I didn't know you could be this devious, and Sinclair says, well, coming from you, that's a high compliment. Jakar's reaction when he realizes, oh, yeah, he's just been told he's devious. And then we find out that Sinclair was even more devious than Jakar thought, because Jakar was under the impression he was going to be able to buy these purple files and use them against Londo and the Centauri Republic for the benefit of the Narn Empire and the Earth Alliance, only to realize he's being set up just to get track is there so that they could find out where Adira is and that they were never going to give the purple files to Jakar at all. So Jakar was completely played in their sting operation. which. It's kind of nice to see because Jakar has been the antagonist. He's been the thorn at everyone's side. So to be able to turn that around on him is always kind of cathartic. And he, uh, he gets his new assistant in this. And you had mentioned a few episodes back that everyone, all the ambassadors get assistance. So this is Kodath. And of course, you said she's only going to be in this one episode. I felt like they were... So when she first walks in the room, Jakar has a very strong reaction. And I wasn't entirely sure why that was, but over the course of that scene, it's like they're playing up the fact that she's not visually classically attractive or whatever, or that she's off-putting as a professional woman. I don't know exactly what they were doing there, but is that why Jakar reacted? He just sees her as like, oh my god, this what did you see there? I saw this not in terms of whether she's attractive or not, because one of the first things that happens is someone hits on her. I thought it was just. Jakar was being very unprofessional in this dancing establishment, drinking with a Centauri when the assistant from the homeworld walks in on him and gets the impression that he may be spending more time here than he actually does. Okay. That he would be judged or looked down. Yeah, okay, I can see that. And yeah, it's not the attractive thing. It's the, the tone of how she responds to people. I don't know. It doesn't really matter that she carries herself in a manner that is 100% professional and do not try for romance while she's on the job. Right. But opposed to Ivanova, it's almost like they're playing that for a little bit of a laugh in this. Whereas Ivanova is not, has a similar mindset, but is not played for. Yes. Yeah. They're, Ivanova, they're both tough, but Ivanova plays it more as an exterior. Whereas Kodath, you get the feeling it's right to the core. That's how I get it. And that's, I think part of that is because we see that softer side of Ivanova here with the passing of her father and watching it, knowing what is going on with that. You can see her kind of smirking when Garibaldi turns his back in a few of the scenes. Yes. Watching this the second time, realizing where that was going to go, she is enjoying getting one up on him throughout, which is fun to see because they are very snipey throughout this. They're very, you know getting at each other and getting under each other's skin in a, in a in a somewhat friendly way, but maybe not entirely friendly. So that, too, at the end, whenever they, whenever she agrees to see him outside of work, it's like a, you know, establishment of a little bit of a rapport there. But, too, it also kind of feels, the, the jollies that she's getting out of it all feels a little bit at odds with actually the nature of the call we find out about. Yeah, that's true. I, I saw that more as taking pleasure where she can right now. 
Okay, yeah. Also a point of pride that she's beating Garibaldi at his own game, because he is the security <laughs> expert. And she's getting around it all. Yeah. And apparently, Jerry Doyle was a little irritated with Larry Dottilio in this, because uh, Jerry Doyle, who plays Garibaldi, was hoping that Garibaldi would be the first character to have a love scene. And instead, it's Londo. <laughs> so that's a little bit of Garibaldi's character coming out in Jerry Doyle as well. Yeah. I'm just looking to see if I had any other notes that are worth bringing up. Because sometimes I write stuff down, just, you know, th thoughts as I have. But then as I'm looking back at it, I'm like, eh, that's not really mentioning. Okay, so the only other thing that I have here, for my part, is the way that Adira and Londo part at the end. You know, okay, so in this course of the episode, she has betrayed trust. She has committed offense. Granted, she had limited choices, you know, all that's there. But whenever they're reunited at the end and he's like, okay, it's all fine. Come back with me. She's the one that says, no, I can't. The wounds are too fresh. And I'm like, you're not going to go with him because your wounds are too fresh when you're the one who committed the offenses or you're not going to go back with him because his wounds are too fresh after what you did to him. But then he wants you to be there. So I don't know. It seemed oddly written. Yeah, it felt like, yeah, you're right. At, at that point, the departure didn't seem natural, especially since at this point, we also realize she had enough second thoughts that she was running from Trachis to not give him the files mm -hmm. in the first place. So it, it's one of those cases where, you know, it, it feels like the love interest is gone just because they're a guest star and not a series regular. Right. But the natural thing feels like it should have been a cheery reunion, forgiveness, you know, back in love. Yeah, or, you know, at, at least time. So, well, it's the kind of thing where later on with this show, because it becomes so serialized, we'd expect her to be more of a recurring character, even if it's not frequently recurring. But what were some of your thoughts of the episode? Yeah, okay. A lot of it, it's awkward, because a lot of this that we haven't already covered is going to come back for giving form to the dream. Okay, well, let's, let's save those things. <laughs> yeah, I, I do like that it, it's a good showcase for Peter Jurisic because I do think he's an underrated actor. He had a lot of character parts and he's had a lot of variety in his career, but you'd have to be watching it as a career because the characters he has been cast for are typically one note guest stars. So he's played a lot of notes over the years, but it's, you know, one, maybe two per show. Mm -hmm. So you don't see that variety in you know, one episode of Scarecrow and Mrs. King or one episode of Remington Steel. Here, we are actually starting to see what he is capable of. So I am actually particularly impressed as we go through the series. Yeah, I, I think the respect for Blondo and Jakar is a, a character as well. We haven't seen the depths of Jakar yet, but they're coming. Everyone has more facets that we'll see, which I don't really consider a spoiler when we're on episode three out of 110. <laughs> <laughs> so that's just we're really saying yeah there's a lot of characters in this show it's not necessarily plot driven in the long term so how about the last best hope the standout character or character moment it would be hard to give it to anyone besides Londo it feels like 90% of the script revolves around him and Jurassic does give a standout performance with vulnerability and depth you know, some of the classic, you know, brash brazenness we expect from Londo, but throughout it's tempered with this, you know, he's in a really difficult situation. And, and one of the things we were able to talk about in the discussion so far is the fact that he's going to Sinclair a lot for help. 
But one of his big concerns is to keep everything unofficial because he can't do any of this where it can get back to his people, to his homeworld. So he's torn throughout. So yeah, I would have to just put his entire thing this in my last book. Yeah, this really is a showcase for him. And you should have pointed out that, yeah, he does consider Sinclair a friend, which is why he gets Sinclair's help off the books. So, uh, and in terms of myself and the fandom, and actually have a, a book here, which is a collection of the most popular quotes from Babylon 5 titled, But in Purple, I'm Stunning, which is a Londo quote we will get in a later episode in the very near future. But yes, there's... There is a, a quote from this episode there that has stood out with fans. The, what do you want, you moon-faced assassin of joy? Because <laughs> he's in bed with his lady, and then the phone starts ringing, and it's like, I don't want to get up. What are you doing? But just that, that moon-faced assassin of joy insult has cropped up a number of times. I've seen it online and at Twigs because I know where it came from. That's great. So shall we move on to giving form to the dream with things in this episode that are going to play out again in the future okay so i'm amused that you have so many because i couldn't think of any except for the possibility of adira's relationship with londo but like you said that's like a very much a guest star one-time thing so doesn't seem to be like a whole lot of maybe she'll come back i don't know but that's the only thing i could think of all right well aside from seeing negrath again who is the sort of alien crime boss. Oh, yeah, the, the insectoid, yes. Yeah, so we have that praying mantis crime boss. We have Londo's self-description as a tired old Republican dreaming of better days. So when he's vulnerable and completely opening up, that's how he sees himself. And that dreaming of better days element of his self-description is going to be very relevant in the future. Dreaming of past better days or wishing for future better days? I guess kind of both. Um, I'll leave that open to interpretation at this point. Okay. Slaves are a thing, and they can be held under contract. And there's another piece which is actually so subtle that the writer knew something wasn't sitting right with him, and he didn't twig to what it was until after the episode was produced. Ivanova's father was able to say everything he wanted to say to Ivanova, but then he passed away before Ivanova could say what she needed to say to him. Okay, so dramatic point. Yeah, so right now, Ivanova is lacking some closure in her relationship with her father. And um, going back to the slave thing for a moment, the notion that they are under contract, that it's more like an indentured servitude than a lifetime slavery, you know, an interesting change on what we normally think of as slavery. Yeah, and it also shows the the views of Babylon 5 and the acceptance, because slavery is outlawed on earth at this point it's not like other sci-fi shows one of the reasons that so many people were interested in babylon 5 and seeing it produced and getting it going is that they realized that most science fiction up to this point is either total utopia or total dystopia mm -hmm. this is one of the rare shows that goes a couple centuries in the future and says no we still have our ups and downs yeah the world is still a complex which we've kind of hinted at with all of the uh xenophobia going on back on earth but yes, yeah, so the idea that slavery is, is illegal on Earth, but we're in a society of, I don't know, tens, scores, hundreds of different, you know, planetary civilizations. Slavery could be totally fine on 90% of them. I don't know. Yeah. So those are the, the moments that really stood out to me as things that are coming back later. And who knows? I, I'm 
reading ahead. So I've read through the scripts for 14 of them, and I realized that there's other bits in the past I should have mentioned. Like in uh, Midnight in the Firing Line, we know that there's raiders. I should have pointed out that, yeah, there's there's raiders. That is also relevant in the future. Stuff like that, I don't know if I'm going to bring up again, because the raiders were discussed. They were an integral part of this episode, so we know they're out there, mm-hmm. and it was established. But if I catch anything that we don't mention at all, I will definitely bring it up again. Or if nothing else, you could make a note, you know, in a future episode of notes in whatever document you keep your notes in, you know, hailing back to Midnight in the Firing Line. We saw Raiders then. Well, now they're back. Yeah. Well, the the, the notes that I make are stored in my brain. Uh, and that's about it. I totally have a Word document for everything. <laughs> when I'm going to be talking about something, I, I write it all down because I will not remember stuff. <laughs> we'll finish the episode and I'll be like... Man, I should have mentioned that and that and that. It'll all fall out of my brain. Oh, I have that too. I just have a habit of not ta- I've had iPads out ready to take notes as I'm watching things. Then I'm like, oh, I'm at the 40-minute mark. I should have written something down. By now. <laughs> well, actually, co- comparatively, I didn't write very many things down for this episode compared to some of the others we've done. But we still got a good discussion out of it. We did. So did you have any closing thoughts before we move on to our Comlink segment where we tell listeners how to... Send us feedback and reach out to us. No, um, this was this was a solid episode. I really enjoyed it. I'm not going to necessarily say it was like a plus stellar moved me deeply, but it was a strong episode. Yeah, it was. I think that there are a couple of key moments that were needed to make this work that were there. One of them is that conversation you mentioned to where she calls him ambassador and she likes his title because... That is something where if you were to look at this couple from the outside, if we saw a woman her age who looked like that and a man Londo's age who looked like Peter Jurassic does under this makeup, if I saw people with that sort of disparity in appearance and age in public, I would assume she's looking for a sugar daddy. Mm -hmm. In which case, if I were him, I wouldn't necessarily be as trusting as Londo was but the value that they place on position makes it plausible for him. Because they're, they're not just separated in age. Like I said, Peter Jurassic is under makeup that makes him look less appealing than he normally is. And I'm not the best judge of how guys look, but without the makeup, I don't think he's significantly uh, removed from average. Right. Whereas she is significantly above average. Right. Classical beauty. Yeah, so there's there's separation in age, there's separation in social standing, and there's separation in physical attraction. So yeah, you might you might make some assumptions about their connection if you saw it from the outside, but the fact that she is attracted to some of those things about him makes the relationship yeah, for sure. So shall we run through the several ways that people have to get in touch with us? Well, my address, if you want to send a letter, is no, just kidding. You can email us at Babylon five thirty years later at gmail dot com. We have claimed all four variants, so you can use numbers or letters, depending on how much typing you feel like doing today, and whether you'd rather leave your fingers in home row or do that extra stretch. So those emails, unless you say otherwise, will be read on air. Although if they contain spoilers for future episodes, then they will be shelved until those episodes, or at least that portion of those emails will be shelved until those episodes, because we do truly want this to be a first-time viewer-friendly podcast. So you will know what is important in our giving form to the dream section, but not why it's important. 
So uh, the show is hosted on two different websites, including my own, johnreadscomics.com with no H. So if you want to send your comments by going to the website and typing on the episode posting, you can do so there. Same ideas with all feedback. If you want to say stuff that's going to spoil the future, maybe flag it and uh, or you like put a capital letters, spoilers for the future, John, turn away. And I'll throw my computer across the room. Okay. To that very well padded wall you have. Right. <laughs> I love the pillows on my walls. What are you talking about? <laughs> yes. The, well, glad it's just down to the one wall and not the whole room. Yes. The, the padded rooms are. Uh, yeah. Uh, so as John mentioned, we're on two websites, I guess three, if you consider the home on Acast. But the second one is Bureau42.com where all of my podcasts are. So you can leave comments there. And while I, I have seen the show, so I can't really be spoiled. I might just be reminded of things I forgot I knew. I would still ask that you have spoiler warnings because who knows if others following and reading the comments are that familiar. But yes, you can leave comments at Bureau42.com as well. You can send us reviews at your various podcatchers. Apple Podcasts is super common and we check those regularly. But if you leave a review somewhere else that you would like us to read and thank you for, just let us know. Hey, I dropped you a review over on podcatcher mania and we'll be like oh let's go look at podcatcher mania look at that review right and the fifth place where you can leave comments would actually be on our youtube posts because we are also releasing these on youtube the video is just a little standard background image the same image that you would see in your podcatcher if you're listening to it that way with you know various visualizer effects to keep it somewhat interesting if you're doing the video channel but you can leave comments there. What's the name of our channel? It's Babylon 5, 30 years later. There we go. We claimed it there as well. And we also have things organized in playlists out there. So there's a playlist for absolutely everything. There's a playlist if you just want our commentaries on the episodes and movies and not our feedback or other bonus episodes. There will be a playlist just for the feedback and bonus episodes. There are also feedbacks or uh, playlists broken by season. So if you're watching on DVD and you binge all of season one, you can then binge our coverage of season one and it'll stop before launching our coverage of season two. And Blade and I have various other podcasts that we do on our several websites, John Reads Comics and Bureau 42. So do feel free to listen to our other shows. Yes, we will be advertising them all at one time or another in the Zocalo, but we're looking at sort of a half and half for our shows and for other shows. and. When we have guests, as we did with Paul earlier this season, we will definitely be dropping their promos in to those as well. So, anything else to say before we wrap up? I think this wraps us up. All right. So, good eating to you. And thank you for listening. <laughs>